Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, the Steve McQueen of Lutheran Podcasts. If you don't know who Steve McQueen is, be ashamed of yourself and go immediately to YouTube. Bullet. And watch Bullet and uh, Papillon and The Getaway. (laughs) Oh, Steve McQueen's so good. All-time coolest actor ever. I am Pastor Donovan Riley, and as always, my co-host, my co-pilot, my life coach, uh, my spiritual I counselor. Thought, I thought Jesus was your co-pilot. My matador of love is Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Yep, I'm here. <laughs> matador of love. I just I threw that out there randomly. I, just a, I'm not sure. And then about I just that realized that I just realized the consequences of that statement. <laughs> Come here, give me a hug. Ole. <laughs> Every time I try and give him a hug, he just steps to the side, and I run through. Or he tries to run his horns through me. Well, that's you. That's too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, there we're off to the perfect start. Uh, th- for this podcast, we're going to go off in a little bit of a different direction than uh, we have been. I don't, we don't uh, want this podcast to turn into just the theologian of the week. Uh, we want to explore not just Lutheran theologians, but Lutheran historians, uh, people who commented on specific you know, aspects of Luther's vocation and career. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll look at his pastoral letters. I'm sure eventually I'd even like to look at Table Talk and oh, yeah. discuss how his students uh, heard him. Because, you know, even though the Table Talk isn't considered, quote unquote, canon in Luther's works, Luther did approve of a lot of the Table Talk yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, who was it? Was it v- Dietrich that did it? Yeah, Dietrich yeah. and Jonas. Mm-hmm. Those were the two primary, because they were his students and then they were his personal secretaries. And exceptional theologians in their own right. Obviously, you live with the guy for decades. Something's going to rub off. Yeah. So we'll get to the, all that difference. But I just want to present, you know, a different kind of the rainbow of Lutheran colors so that <laughs> you're not just turned on to Lutheran theologians you may not have read or, or, you know, works, B-sides and rarities and stuff like that. But also, when I started my doctor, you know, my postdoctoral program in church history and Reformation studies – there were still a lot of Lutheran church historians alive. They were older. They were retired for the most part. But, you know, Heiko Orban, Jim Kittleson, um, Carter Lindbergh, Stephen Osment, all of those guys who were at the forefront of Luther studies, they were still alive. And I got to interact with all of them. And since they died, actually, Lutheran scholarship, specifically Lutheran historical scholarship, Luther historians, has mm. really dropped off the map. You don't really see it anymore. Yeah, especially original scholarship, right? It's, oh, yeah. it's a lot of derivative. Yeah. You look at Martin Brecht and Heiko Obermann and others who wrote biographies of Luther and how exceptional those books are. And that's, you know, just within one generation, it's already dropped off. We don't see a lot of that. Mm. So for this podcast, then, we're going to dip our toe in that to a certain extent. We're going to read Heinrich Bornkamm. B-O-R-N-K-A-M-M, Heinrich Bornkamp's book, Luther and the Old Testament by Sigler Press. Hmm. Pub- I know, right? Sigler Press. You can find this on Amazon or eBay. Yeah. It's in a box <laughs> in storage. It was published in 19... 19- Limited license of special permission from Augsburg Fortress, copyright 1969. Mm. And then the second edition was published by Sigler Press in 1997. Was this... So- uh- is this translated or was this original English? Yes, it was translated. Yeah, who, in fact, I think at the beginning there's a translator's preface. Yep, there is. There's a translator's preface. Who did the translation? Uh, that's a good question because it's just initials. It's two people. Okay. So I'm not quite sure 
who I think it was Eric Rich. Eric mm. Rich, and it might have been his wife. I think they both translated. It's been a while. Again, it's been like 2000, 2001 since I've actually had contact with him. Mm. I don't even know if he's alive anymore. Um, someone can uh, comment. If he's alive, then hey. And if not, okay. That's what happens. You lose track of people. I mean, this is, this is a challenging work to translate because of all the references. Extremely and technical and very technical. German. Mm-hmm. And Heinrich Bornkam is no slouch intellectually, exegetically. And this is kind of the reason that I've cherished this book since the first, I usually read it once a year, um, is that Luther is an Old Testament professor. And I was thinking about this as I was getting this ready this afternoon. The older I get, the more I concern myself with Luther as an exegete, not so much as a theologian. Mm -hmm. And I think when we first discover Luther, no matter what age we are, we tend to encounter him as a theologian. Right. Not again, you don't necessarily get Kittleson's Luther the Reformer or Obermann's Luther God or yeah, Luther, uh, man between God and the devil. You usually get Heidelberg Disputation or a collection of Luther's works. Well, you start with a small catechism, that's right, right, exactly. And so, and that's the thing too is we present the small catechism systematically, dogmatically, and I think that also is what causes maybe causes people later to put down the catechism and not really pay attention Mm -hmm. to it. They went through it, they memorized it, they spit out the answers, and the data has been collated and processed, and so we don't have to revisit it. Mm. And I think if you introduce people, whether they're young or old, to Luther narratively, what you encounter through the, the historical scholarship is this, you know, at the heart, Luther's an exegete first and foremost, even as a monk, his primary concern as a monk is with the interpretation of scripture. Yeah. And this wrestling with the word righteousness of God, this term righteousness of God, the word righteousness and wrestling with it in his first Psalms lectures and then in the Romans lectures and and Mm -hmm. so on. For me, like I said, as I get older, I'm less interested in his systematic stuff. And I, because that's the stuff I read that made me a Lutheran. Yeah. But the more time I've spent 20 years with him now and the longer I, I, I hang out with him, the more I go back to his biblical stuff. In fact, about three, four years ago, just as an exercise, what I would do is sit down with the Masoretic text, the Luther's German Bible, the 1901 translation, because they mm-hmm. kind of bastardized it in the 70s. Yeah, that's right. And an ESV translation side by side, and I just translate. Mm-hmm. And I have a conversation with Luther, the exegete, through my own exegesis of, of the Old Testament. And what often happens is I look at the modern translation, a more reformed translation, the ESV text. Then I look at Luther's translation of the Masoretic text. Then I translate the Masoretic texts. And especially in regards to the Psalms, uh, but also the prophets, and even the the Torah, the five books of Moses, you know, in Genesis in particular, what Luther would do when he wanted to emphasize a Christological text is he would boldface it. Mm-hmm. That's right. And in the 1901 edition, then they would often boldface or capitalize those. So even if you don't know German that well, just opening it up and scanning the page for those dark, you know, boldly, um, what do you want to say, embossed words or whatever, yeah. it points you to where Luther, as an exegete, is saying, this is about Christ, pay attention to this, it's important. Hmm. It's a different kind of red letter Bible then, right? Yeah, exactly. That mm-hmm. Luther not, isn't necessarily looking for prophecies about Christ, even though he 
spends time with that. He's more interested in where the second person of the Trinity is manifest to Israel, where the mm-hmm. promise is manifest to them. And that's rare now in relation to modern exegesis, probably because it's been so informed by Reformed theology. Mm. You know, Luther as an exegete is like the Ramones. Hmm. And, you know, Reformed exegesis is like some 41 in Good Charlotte. It's like pop punk, you know. Oh, I thought you were going to say Green Day. I didn't. I didn't. I have to – my daughter loves Green Day. Actually, (laughs) all my kids love Green Day, and they scold me for – Bad mouthing, you know, being being the grumpy old man on the front porch yelling, "Get off my lawn!" Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, "This isn't punk." Listen to fear. That's punk. <laughs> yeah. that, they're they're probably the best executed, um, you know, parody act. <laughs> oh, definitely. You, yeah. If you listen to especially the early Green Day, like Dookie, mm-hmm. I mean, that's there's you can still tell they're punk, and then by the time you get to American Idiot and stuff, they've kind of you know moved in a a certain direction creatively, musically, mm-hmm. and it certainly paid off for them. Yeah, but America, you know, American Idiot is kind of like the black Metallica's Black Album. It's right. like we're going in a different direction, and if you're a fan or you're not, we don't care. <laughs> this is where we're going. And like you said, so much of pop punk in the 2000s was just trying to imitate. Green Day. In the same way, there was all so many bands in the 90s trying to imitate like Pearl Jam, right? Right. Not a lot that imitated Nirvana, oddly, or Alice in Chains or Soundgarden, but Mm-mm. it seemed like Eddie Vedder was, well, Creed, obviously, is the most blatant example of that. Yeah. But there was, I think about this the other day, there was Days of the New, which is an acoustic act. Hmm. Um, but there, Don't yeah, there were a number. Uh, because, of course, um, that's what the music industry is. It's just fi- fine your golden goose and then just imitate it until yeah, it's dead derivatives of derivatives right yeah. and so reformed exegesis is like that you know to me reformed exegesis is like the hot topic of exegesis mm-hmm. it's fun it's fun to go in every once in a while just to remind yourself of how dumb you were when you were 12 yeah and it doesn't even represent the scholarship of somebody like calvin right no exactly yeah mm-hmm. calvin's an exceptional exegete mm-hmm. And I don't think we appreciate that enough in the present tense of how remarkable theologians like Calvin and Luther were. Mm-hmm. Not right. just intellectually were they geniuses, but we're a molehill, we're an anthill in relation to Mount Everest when it comes to those exegetes compared to our own exegesis. Mm-hmm. They were so adept at the original languages because of the influence of humanism and the the printing press made all that available to them for the first time. And their just knowledge of scripture and theology and the history of exegesis. I mean, the the Lutheran Reformation invented, Matthias Flacius Illyricus invented modern hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. We, for, we, we forget that, that Lutherans invented hermeneutics. We're, we are the, the pain in the butt at the table who says, yes, but what's the context? Mm. Lutherans invented that. <laughs> yeah, because before, before you had the fourfold method, right? That was the medieval method. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it, but it, they were all equal, like, arts of interpretation. You could use any of the four. Right. Or actually, you were to use all four. And uh, what topological, and I can't remember them all now. Anagogical. Mm-hmm. There's anagogy, allegory, typology. What's the moral one? Mm. 
I can never remember the fourth one. Uh, the, I can't remember off the top of my head. But right, they have the fourfold method. So you're always looking for the four different meanings of a text. Right, right. And you didn't really have to know ex- how to exegete a text. You didn't really know need to know Hebrew and Greek. Even if you had access to a Hebrew, if you don't know somebody who was Jewish, you didn't really have access to a Hebrew Bible. Mm. And the Vulgate, historically, it was just pieced together. Yeah. It's not a very reliable text. And so you, but you had, you know, guys like Bonaventura and Brad Wardeen who wrote these commentaries of the Bible, you know, quote unquote commentaries of the Bible. And Luther constantly complains about this when he starts to teach the Psalms. Mm, he right. goes and reads these commentaries and then discovers how deficient they are in actually exegeting the Bible. And for well, us, go ahead. You know, as if there's, you know, there's always four meanings and maybe yes. not one clear meaning. Yeah. Often the text is going to have a clear meaning. Right. Well, and we talked about this in the episode on the bondage of the will, Erasmus. That's how he looked at texts that were confusing or obscure. He just said, well, they're just confusing and obscure. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have to use our, our logic, sanctified speculation, so to speak, sanctified imagination. Whereas Luther is saying, uh-uh, no. There's the literal interpretation, the rhetorical interpretation, and then there's the spiritual interpretation, the, the interpretation of faith that sees Christ in every page. Mm-hmm. And as Luther said, if something's obscure or ambiguous or confusing, that's on account of our sin, not on account of a lack of clarity from God. Yeah. And, yeah, so, and sometimes he's not speaking uh, in, intentionally. He's, sometimes he's yes. intentionally speaking obscurely. Read the parables, like the, for example. Yeah, if you want parables. to understand how God wants to be obscure, I speak so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Yeah, but to you it's been given, right? Right. So, so faith is required to, to see Christ in those parables. Right, exactly. Faith says, Lord, we would have you show us Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's really what is amazing, what's remarkable about guys like Luther and Calvin and others at the time, of, even Zwingli at the time of the Reformation, is they had access to primary sources, and they were able to get access to uh, Hebrew lexicons, Greek lexicons. And could translate the Vulgate against or translate the Masoretic or translate the Koine against the Vulgate mm-hmm. and say, oh, well, hmm. Like we had talked about regarding like jo- Jerome's translation of Metanoia as do penance and yeah. Luther translating, translating that. And for the first time since Jerome, someone said, hey, I don't think this is a good translation, which makes things kind of awkward when the entire foundation of the papacy is based on that translation. <laughs> this is that uncle that comes to the party uh, that just makes makes it uncomfortable for everybody. Right, exactly. Uh, who let Luther who invited in? him? <laughs> Nobody. That's right. So it's no small thing what these men did Mm-mm. exegetically and like and then kind of coming back around. That's why I I tend to want to spend more time with Luther as an exegete as I get older because I want more him as a teacher of the Bible than necessarily a, a dogmatician or a right. systematician. When he doesn't the, approach his exegetical work, even late in life, like Genesis lectures, he doesn't mm-hmm. approach it uh, in a dogmatic way. Like no, I'm going to really go doesn't. to the, I'm going to go to this text to see, you know, to make it prove what I already believe. He doesn't well, approach it that way. And he, he points to this in many of his sermons where he begins the sermon by saying the Holy Spirit paints a beautiful picture for us in the gospel <laughs> lesson. Yeah. That Luther very much understands that words are painting a picture. Hmm. 
and that we think in pictures. We think in images. Just go look at cave paintings. You know, what's that cave in France? I just watched the Werner Herzog documentary about it. Now I can't remember the name of it. There's a famous cave in France with all the prehistoric, you know, paintings. Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite remarkable because there's 3D paintings, which is really unheard of. Yeah. So perspective. Yeah, the perspective that they would paint on stalactites. Mm. And so they would paint in three-dimensional space. But then what they would do also is they would paint something on a stalactite that would be continued on the wall behind the stalactite. So if you stood in a certain place, it was this larger picture. But if you stood off center of the stalactite, it didn't. It was two different paintings, hmm. or at least appear to be. It's, it's, a it's, like, it's like using those uh, those uh, 3D cameras. What the viewfinders? Is that what they're called? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. But and I like Werner Herzog as a documentarian is remarkable i wanted to see the one with the volcanoes that is amazing yeah it really is photography and how how do you get those shots how exactly how did he get down inside the volcano that way but i digress so in this podcast then if you uh didn't know (laughs) we'll get there eventually we're gonna get there eventually we're gonna go to page 230 of borncom's book luther and the old testament And this is part four of the chapter, Salvation, Redemption, Grace, Blessedness. And what we're, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, that's what it is. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Mm, Thank you. Yes, excellent. Again, you're the producer, man. You're supposed to be doing this. I have gloves on because it's so cold in here. Oh, you're in the garage. Yeah, I don't have an office, so the garage is as close as it gets. But it's like 25 degrees outside. So it's space heaters. You can get a space heater. I I have a space heater. It's having a hard time. (laughs) It's not working. Okay. It's not working. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I'm not looking for your pity. I'm just explaining. I'm not typing very much right now. This is probably a good time to say we really would appreciate reviews and (laughs) (laughs) give us a thumbs up. Go to iTunes, subscribe, and also buy Pastor Gillespie's coffee so he can afford Uh heat in his garage. (laughs) (laughs) And other things. And other things, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) so let's read a little bit on page 230 and uh, again this is a more technical book because it is specifically looking at luther as an old testament exegete as a theologian of the old testament so we'll try and go slow and and take it one step at a time we'll get through that again we'll go to mordor and we'll bring you right back to the shire by the end i promise The most common of all concepts for God's work of salvation, salvation, which in German is Heil, contributes very little to our question. (laughs) So the most common of all concepts for God's work of salvation contributes very little to our question. Luther understands the Hebrew Yeshua, which, if you don't know, we get the word Joshua, Jesus from, uh, or in the Latin, the Vulgate, it's salutary or salutare, as salvation in a number of passages where it was clearly used to indicate outside help. We're going to get to that in a second. For example, in Exodus 14.13, 1 Samuel 14.15, and 2 Chronicles 20.17. So this is really foundational for Luther's understanding of salvation, that salvation is outside help. In Latin, we would say extra nos, outside of us. That's right. That Yeshua, Jesus, uh, the Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, Yeshua, that he is outside of us. He is alive. He is the actual personality. And therefore, salvation, our help, comes from outside of us. Right. 
that means that there is no place in the entire Bible where salvation starts in us yeah. or comes out of us. Yeah, so we seek to be saved. No, that's not how it is. <laughs> right. No one seeks God, Romans 2. <laughs> right. Or 3, Romans 3. No one seeks God, not one. All have turned aside. <laughs> All. Yeah, we run away from salvation. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's the beginning then. When you read the Old Testament with Luther, the first thing that Luther does when he translates to the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is our modern translation, salvation, he translates that or it is translated in such a way that it means outside help. But, Borncom writes, he did not do this to impose New Testament ideas of salvation on these passages. What that means is... What's the simplest way to say it? He's translating the Hebrew and letting it stand on its own without running to the New Testament and saying, well, Paul says this, therefore this must mean this. Right, applying a dogmatic assertion that he's gotten from the New Testament upon his translation. Yeah, and that's a good point, again, that what we forget too often is that the New Testament writings are a commentary on Scripture. Mm Mm-hmm. That the Gospels, the Epistles of Paul, and the others are simply these people's way of saying, oh, Jesus is Yeshua. <laughs> yeah. Think of the Pentecost sermon, right? Mm-hmm. You know, where he quotes this obscure text from Joel. Yes. And like, what does this have to do with anything? And you're like, oh, wait a minute. He's right. just saying, this is what we just saw. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, and that's, the again, the remarkable thing. We were talking about this in relation to baptism last mm. Sunday in adult Bible study. Every time a baby's born, I do a step one, uh, for all you AAers out there, a step one, where in AA, when a new person comes, you no matter what step you're on in the 12 steps, you go back to step one because they're new, and you're introducing them to the 12 steps. Uh, likewise, when a baby's born, I always use that as an opportunity to revisit, why do we baptize babies? Right. And uh, I had a baby. I got a baby uh, last week, I went to the, the hospital, and the stork dropped one off for us. Sweet. Uh, yeah, right? I know. So you just put in your order, and uh, huh. Amazon delivers it next day. It's so easy. It's so easy. So easy <laughs> to fall in love. Um, and so we baptized our baby, Gita, in the hospital, because I'm a firm believer in Titus chapter 3. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the washing of regeneration renewal in the Holy Spirit, and it's not our works, so that we can't claim our own righteousness. And that's the sticking, and the, the point is this, that when you read the New Testament and you read on baptism in Titus 3, 1 Peter 3, uh, Romans 6, Jesus in John 3, they're interpreting that out of the Old Testament. Hmm. Infant baptism is coming out of the scriptural, the Old Testament teaching about the, save, the Savior, about salvation. Yeah, This is why Philip can read Isaiah to the Ethiopian eunuch and say, oh, this is about baptism. Most well, the eunuch says it to Philip, right? Yes. Yeah. I think hey, that's one of There's water those, here. Let's there's water. Baptized. Let's get baptized. Exactly. Me. I think that really is one of the things that we miss the most when we go into the Old Testament and take the New Testament and say, this is what this passage of the Old Testament must mean because mm-hmm. John says so or Peter says so. Mm-hmm. But rather, we stand with them in relation to the Scripture, the Old Testament, and ask the Old Testament, how exactly do you get from Genesis chapter 3 to, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you? Mm -hmm. 
how do you get there? How do you cross it? Where is that bridge at that I can walk across it? <laughs> and if you were to tear apart your Bible and throw away the New Testament, could you get to infant baptism? Could you get to this is my body, this is my blood? Because Luther does. Mm-hmm. And that's what Borenkamp is pointing out is that when Luther translates Exodus, 1 Samuel, and Second Chronicles, he's also holding Paul accountable to Scripture. He's saying to Paul, you have to prove to me that what you're saying is scriptural before I'll accept it, which is remarkable, Mm. especially in the present tense context, where we very much are like the medieval exegetes. Mm -hmm. That is, well, the dogmatics don't say that, so therefore you're wrong. Mm. Well, how do you know I'm wrong if you haven't tested it against scripture? Because the dogmatics say so. Mm -hmm. And they're not wrong. (laughs) That's accepted wisdom. And yet Luther, first in fear and trembling, as he himself says, but later then with more boldness, says, no, anybody, regardless of who it is, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Paul, who departs from Scripture is not to be believed, because Paul himself says that in Galatians. If anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one that I preach to you, let him be anathema. Mm -hmm. There's only one gospel, there's only one promise in Scripture. Right. And I think we talked about this with uh, Genesis, didn't we, with the translation of uh, Eve's words at the birth of, yes. of Cain? Cain, you know? yeah. The Lord has given me a man, the yeah, Lord. Yeah, it's Dane Mon, right, in German. Yeah. And it's capitalized and it's boldface. Exactly. Yeah, in Luther's translation, it's like, this is about Jesus. <laughs> she thought he was Jesus. And then you, then you, read, you read like, uh, oh, I don't know, Lutheran Study Bible or something, and, you, and yes. it's like, well, this is what Luther said, but... You're like, but exactly, this is what modern reformed exegesis has said. Mm-hmm. Exactly, that the Lord has given me this man. <laughs> right? No. Why wouldn't she have been looking for the fulfillment? Stop of the rearranging promise? words. Right? <laughs> She's not waiting for some long, distant, you know, promise. Correct. She expected it to come to pass immediately. You know? Immediately, and yeah. this is the criticism of modern exegesis of someone like Paul, who says that Jesus, he expects Jesus to return in his lifetime. Mm. And or Peter, and Peter addresses this right in his first letter, correct? That there are people who mock us because Jesus hasn't returned yet, mm. and yet we know in faith that he will return, mm-hmm. and he will silence the, criti- the criticism. That Peter, Paul, all of them were mocked by their opponents for their expectation that Jesus would return in the. But Luther himself, from that, believed Jesus will return in his own day, and mm-hmm. so why wouldn't Eve be the one who sets that precedent by naming, by her and Adam, naming their firstborn son, Cain, Cain, that is, this is the Lord. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a strange thing that, that we've forgotten our, our exegetical heritage as Lutherans. Yeah, and then throughout the lectures, you have all the patriarchs um, in their, you know, their preaching, which isn't recorded mm-hmm. for us, but then Luther fills in the blank, right. <laughs> so to speak, and says, so, well, of course, the preaching of the Savior. Right. right. Um, and, and you could use the New Testament to prove that if you wanted. Mm-hmm. You could go to Hebrews, contested book, or whatever. You could go to Hebrews by faith, by faith, you know, Abraham yes. believed the promise. Um, but you don't need to. No, you, you don't. Yeah. And that was. And maybe that's our, that's why we've diminished so much as exegetes because we don't start where Luther starts and where Luther starts his students off at, which is in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, specifically mm-hmm. the Torah. As he gets older, he more and more focuses in on Torah. 
And that's why you see in his early lectures, he's always going back to the Psalms, always going back to the Psalms. And then Mm -hmm. in the 1520s, he lectures on Genesis, actually, but also Isaiah, Ecclesiastes, the Minor Prophets. And then at the end, he just lectures on Genesis. Yeah. He just stays there for 10 years. And this is the thing we, again, we failed to appreciate about Luther. I've mentioned this before. He spent over 12 years editing his translation of the Old Testament. And he was constantly talking with Philip Melanchthon because Philip was really the one who taught Luther how to be a better exegete. Mm -hmm. Luther knew Hebrew, but Melanchthon was a child prodigy when it came to languages. That's right. And he checked everything that Luther did. Everything. Luther quickly gave anything he translated to Melanchthon and a couple others like Bugenhagen to proof for him. So it wasn't like he was working in an ivory tower and then came out and said, it's done. Well, initially he was at the Vortberg, right? But <laughs> Right. I mean, he was in an ivory tower, so to speak. And yet everything he wrote was constantly being taken by wagon back to Wittenberg. Mm-hmm. Even then he was sending it back going, make notes, make notes, and then send it back to me so I can fix it. Mm-hmm. And he tinkered with that, like I said, for over a decade. Yeah, and I, maybe and the I, movie, maybe one of the, the most recent movie got it right. In Sexy that, Luther? <laughs> yeah, that one with, uh, with Fiennes, Fiennes, Joseph yeah. Fiennes. Joseph, Joseph Fiennes, right. Joseph. Right. But that he's... He's intensely, you know, he's almost desperate to to get the scriptures into the uh, the hands and the ears of the of the people in their language. Yes, very much so. so. They know it. Mm-hmm. So tinkering, so, corrections tinkering. along the way, but but again, first edition, second edition. Let's get this, you know, right. Keep it going. Exactly. So he did not do this to impose New Testament ideas of salvation upon Exodus, First Samuel, and Second Chronicles. Rather, he did it because for him, the broad meaning of salvation included outside help and protection. For example, we have a strong city. Walls and defenses are salvation. Isaiah 26, verse 1. We have a strong city. Walls and defenses are salvation. On the other hand, Luther, after the revision of 1531, which was, again, over 10 years after he started, made changes in the Psalter with a consistency similar to that which we observed above with the concept of truth, amuna, right? Amuna, truth, no, emmet. Emmet is truth. Mm-hmm. I think we actually talked about that in a previous, I think the, the buyer podcast, we talk about this meaning of emmet, truth, and faith. Well, I don't back. know, they all blur together. They all blur go, together. Yeah. Go That's why listen. this is as Lutheran as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> so as he revises the Psalter in 1531, after 1531, with a consistency similar to that which we observed above with the concept of truth, Emmet, and in a large number of passages distinguished carefully between salvation and help, which in German is Hilfe, in the sense of the original text, hmm. such as Psalm 9, Psalm 12, Psalm 21, Psalm 22, 35, 38, 42, 51, 62, 69, 78, 85, 106, 119, 140, and 27, 9, and 46, 1. When he made these revisions, he made revisions. No, so he's doing, uh, what was the term? I learned it in seminary. He's, he's working with the semantic domain, right? Yeah. So as he reads and reads and reads, he sees, um, you know, the kind of the variance in, in, in word definition, but he can also see kind of the precision of it too, right? Right. Yeah, know, that's not, a good point. Yeah. Not just all the possible meanings, but, but kind of the common meanings that it has yes, throughout the scripture, so. throughout the Old Testament in particular. And then, well, and uh, imagine the kind of understanding, rhetorically speaking, the kind of understanding you have after translating for 10 years hmm. and going back and reworking and reworking and, and to almost a micro level, microscopic yeah. level, 
you're a, at that point, your pattern recognition skills in relation to Hebrew must be amazing. Yeah. And of course, not only are you translating it, but you're teaching it as you're translating it. So year after year, you're teaching seminarians, you're teaching these students at the Black Cloister. And you're just going back to it over and over. And that affords you the opportunity to go back and translate and tweak it because you're literally doing it in real time for students. And then the students, it goes out from there into the hands of pastors and theologians and into the hands of the common laity. It's just a constant stream for over a decade yeah. of Luther saying, all right, I looked at this again, and this is, this is better. Like you said, within this semantic domain, this is better. This is a bitter rhetorical translation of this word. Because hmm. I've been chewing on it for a decade. <laughs> how, do you, I just, I, how do you argue with a person like that and say, no, I don't think you got this? <laughs> again, I think that's the arrogance of us in the present tense, is that Luther's not here to speak for himself, and so we diminish his contribution. Yeah, and maybe we don't, maybe we don't understand how radically... Well, how radical it was to to make those exegetical decisions in the translation into German, correct? Uh, especially against you know the language of the church, which was in, exactly in the Vulgate. I mean that right. that was that was huge. I mean we already mentioned it, but I mean that had political ramifications. Well, imagine <laughs> saying after twelve hundred years, democracy doesn't work, and here's why: the Constitution mm. is we mistranslated the Constitution, mm. <laughs> we mistranslated the Bill of Rights. We got to retranslate the Bill of Rights. That would be rather upsetting, yeah. <laughs> especially to constitutional lawyers. That's their whole life. Well, there were canon lawyers. Their whole life was holding, well, this is what the Vulgate says because this is what these theologians have said. And how dare you disagree with Augustine and Jerome and these other theological giants? Who are you? Yeah. So on the, of the 38 passages in which the Luther Bible today renders help, Hilfa, he at that time changed half from salvation. Wow. Yeah. The footnote says, Luther did not need to introduce this change in the rest of the Old Testament writings. Instead, he put the emphasis differently in the first place, in the sense of this word for help. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have to go around to every passage and go, in case you didn't understand, this is what I meant because mm-hmm. of these translations of the Psalms, but rather, no, in the first instance, this is what this word means. Yeah. It's amazing. It just, it's amazing. So naturally, the more restricted use of salvation for deliverance lifts the remaining passages that much more into the realm of timelessness and thus contributes to the New Testament tone of the Psalter. For example, it says, see Psalm 50, 23, 67, 2, 91, 16, 98, 2, and 3, 119, verse 81, 123, 155, and 166. That what you'll see... If you pay, if you buy this book, for example, and let um, Borncom walk you through it, but if you read the Luther Bible, if you can read German, and the whole why hasn't Lu- the Luther Bible ever been translated into English is a really sore point for me to this day. Again, the older I get, the grumpier I get about it. Um, <laughs> that as Lutherans, we don't just have a English translation of the Luther Bible. Mm. That drives me crazy. Even as a historical artifact, that would be really cool yeah. to go back and to access the primary text, which we have, and just do a translation from the primary text. Is there, is there a little bit of a, oh, I don't know, chronological snobbery involved there? In that? 
Luther doesn't have access, you know, to Nestle Island 28 or... Well, it's that, but it's also a matter of licensing. Oh, who owns the the license? The Weimar Ausgabe. Oh, okay. They own it. You have to buy the license from them to Mm. translate it. And then when you publish it, you would have to essentially, you know, give them a cut. What, is that a critical edition of Luther Bible then? Yeah. Oh, okay. The Weimar. Yeah. But even in the Weimar, again, they have the German, they have the Luther translation. They don't need to translate it. (laughs) Mm-hmm. they just publish it we don't have that and even as a like i said even as an artifact even as a point of scholarship why is especially at the 500th anniversary of the lutheran reformation we still don't have an english translation of the luther bible sounds to me like you're volunteering uh no <laughs> <laughs> careful what you wish for that's that's the old uh, voodoo child chop down a mountain with the edge of my hand kind of statement <laughs> yeah. no there will be there will be none of that. It's uh, I was watching of uh, this. I my daughter falls asleep on me. My baby girl, mm-hmm. uh, nine day old baby, she falls asleep on me. And as I remarked on Instagram, when I'm old and gray, I will not ever say I wish I had worked more and spent less time with my kids. Yeah. And so when my daughter falls asleep on me, that's siesta. We're taking a break because that's. I was trying to find that. all the gray hair in that picture, but I guess you're not. I don't have any baby. Yet. As everybody at the gym says, I look 33, and I'm going to ride that to the bitter end. <laughs> but um, I was watching a video of, of uh, high school students play Portal. And it's that's what – I think if you had to ask me, that would be my favorite video game ever. Mm. What year Portal. was that? I forget. Oh, geez. That was – I'm want to. i going to say six years ago, but it was probably 12 years ago. I'll even take off my gloves to find out. Um and my favorite online multiplayer game ever is, um, uh, I just, I literally, it was right there and it just flitted away. Hmm. It's, it's in the same pack with Portal. Portal, 2007. 2007. So mm-hmm. it was seven years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, wait, nine years ago, 10 years ago, 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Um, what came, what was the online game that came with it? Team Fortress 2. It's my favorite online multiplayer ever, Team Fortress 2. I love that game. <clears throat> that's why I still have a PS3. <clears throat> Team yeah. Fortress. There's still people that that they only play Team Fortress Two. Oh, PS3. that was the same. That was the same developer, right? Yeah, id. Valve. Um, not id. Valve. Mm-hmm. Good night. I'm embarrassing myself. Half Life, Counter Strike, Day of yep. Defeat. Oh, Left Counter Dead. Strike. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, Left for Dead. I love Left for Dead. Left for Dead Two. Mm. Again, they Valve understands online multiplayer better than any t- mark. Oh, like any I, and they're the ever. ones that built Steam. Yes. Ah. Okay. Yes. Hand, it just that's essentially it's a money tree. Steam. <laughs> In fact, I don't even have Steam bookmarked because if I go to Steam, I'll spend a hundred dollars, fifty dollars on because they have those sales where you can buy just like game, like you can buy Left for Dead for a dollar, <laughs> and all of a sudden I've got twenty new games on my laptop and no time to play them, and I'm sitting there going, "But it was a dollar. I had to get it," and. Yeah, if you know, but anyway, so Portal, watching high school students play Portal, and that's one of my, I play that so many times, it's one of my favorite games, like I said, my favorite game ever. I was thinking it reminded me of Luther as an exegete. Mm-hmm. That's how abstract, that's how meta my mind is. That Luther can just, like, he can just figure out how to, how to connect all of these things in scripture and just go back and forth between them so effortlessly. And we're constantly, like, trying to take these linear paths. Like we're trying to make our way through a maze. And Luther's like, no, dude, don't go through the maze. 
There's a, just make a hole here and then make a hole over there and just go from there to here. It's like a wormhole. Yeah. A tesseract, a, a wrinkle in time. Mm. That's Luther as an exegete. He just folds it and goes, no, it's straight. It's right here. It's easy. And we just don't, we don't get there. Yeah. Well, and even Bornkamp seems to be doing that. I mean, the, the work, yeah. I'm thinking the work that would it, it would take to just write this paragraph that we just read. Mm-hmm. You know, just the extra. That's a lifetime work. of work. Yeah, just 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 the evaluation. I mean, he's not he doesn't have the benefit of computer technology to find right. all these references and just search for him in logos and there No, he's got to go and yeah, Dewey Decimal. Yeah, he's doing it the hard way. Well, and that that again, I th- that's a great point that you raise. Is I really do think that's why scholarship, and this is just my opinion, mm-hmm. that and I, I went through this. I earned my PhD. I wrote my dissertation. All that stuff. So I'm speaking inside baseball here. I'm speaking for myself as well. These guys had to work and earn their knowledge. Mm. They could not Google it. They could not look it up online and just have it at their fingertips. They had to go find it. And a lot of times, and this is what I learned because I did my postgraduate stuff beginning in 2001, is you read a book and then you go to the bibliography and you pull out what looks like the books that apply to your topic and then you go find those books. And it's like Hansel and Gretel. It's like following the breadcrumbs. Mm -hmm. Because unless there's an article, and back in 2001, again, you had computers and interlibrary loans, but you still had to get a copy of the essay, Mm -hmm. the article. And and usually that involved me calling Yale and saying, I need a copy of this. And then I send them a check for $10. And then they make a copy and send it to me through the mail. And it took two, three weeks, sometimes three, four months. And then you read the article and then get to the bottom and look at the footnotes and find the bibliography and then go get that stuff. And what it did for me and what it did for a guy like Borncom, as you pointed out, is you got to earn that scholarship. You have to earn that knowledge Mm -hmm. and you have to live with it because there's, like I said, there's not easy access to multiple things at one time that you can't go on Steam and buy 25 games. You get, when I was little, you got a game. And that may be the only game you play for six months or a year. Right. You got a game on your birthday and you got a game at Christmas time. Yeah, it was 45 bucks for the game. Exactly. And that was big money. And you played that thing until you had a blister right in the palm of your hand from that Atari well, joystick. Well, and this is, this is the origin of uh, what might be peculiar to uh, today's generation, but the, the whole speed run thing, right? Yes. So not only do you win the game, but then you have to learn how to win the game as fast as possible. Yes. Because you had nothing but time, and there was no save point. That's right. You That's died, right. you start at the beginning. It's like, like all, the, all the Nintendo Switch people complaining about how, how their game progress isn't going to be saved if, if their right. Switch dies. It's like, right, exactly. Nah, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not even a first world problem. I don't even no. know what that is. You're going to lose your game progress. It's okay. Exactly. And then you go play it again, and maybe you'll remember. Maybe what, you what happened to us is we would play all night long, my friend Eric Hansen and me. We would play all night long on the Atari in the mm. in his parents' basement, and then we would go to sleep, and then and we'd leave it on, of course, because again you can't stop your progress, so you would just leave it on, <laughs> and you would just stop moving forward, like in Pitfall or something or Jungle Hunt. You just stop moving forward, you just pause, and then go to sleep, and then you go outside and play, and you you know his mom would come downstairs to clean up after us and turn oh, the TV no. off, right? Mm-hmm. And you'd come inside, and you just played for six hours, yeah. and it was just gone. So. Kids listening today, you don't even understand disappointment, okay? You don't even fathom the kind of angst that is created when you spend six hours on a game and your mom just turns it off. And you said you don't have gray hair. Oh, well. 
and that was remember you had to take a picture of the TV and send it to Atari. <laughs> and you got like a t-shirt or stuff, right? Right. But yeah, you had to take a photograph and that photograph had to go to the to the Pomida or the Kmart and they had to develop it and then you had to take the picture and send it to Atari and then just wait for months. <laughs> Well, you always knew when you played a game too long because then uh, you'd see it while you're watching regular TV. Yes, yes. <laughs> the burn-in. This so. explains so much about our generation mm. <laughs> and the angst of grunge music. Mm. It all stems from our mothers turning off Atari video games. Yeah. Oh, kids you just don't understand, man. Blowing in the cartridge. Mm. <laughs> so we continue. To redeem, like salvation, had a wide range of meaning. Luther used it for the Hebrew word ga'al and pada. Mm -hmm. In many contexts, as much for redemption from external slavery as from distress and sinful guilt, and on the whole, he rendered the sense of the original text. So, to redeem, salvation, redemption, he uses them synonymously here, had a wide range of meaning. And he uses the two Hebrew words ga'al and pada for a, a rescue, help from, deliverance from, delivery from external slavery. Mm. That is deliverance from distress. And this word distress, the way Luther translated it is, it's an ancient word, ananke. Uh, we get the word angst from it. Mm -hmm. And actually, Kierkegaard was really hip to this. It means to be chained from your head to your feet and, so that you are unable to move at all. Oh. And he gets this from the Psalter because distress in Hebrew in the Psalter is to be confined, to be in a very narrow space. It's like the like um, that scene in Inception where he's running from down that African, you know, all those African Moroccan side streets. And he, he gets stuck in that wall between those two buildings because it's too narrow. Mm, yeah. And he's trying to push his way out, push his way out, push his way out. And he kind of pops out and then Tom Hardy picks him up in the car and they drive away. That's what it literally means. Distress means to be crushed between two un immovable objects and therefore salvation for the Hebrew, the Israelites for Hebrews is to be set in a wide open space. Hmm. That freedom is literally to be wide open, to be right out in the middle of everything and to be completely no borders whatsoever. So no more claustrophobia then. Yeah, exactly. That's why the grave for them, Sheol was, was such a scary thing. Because it was this narrow place, this dark place, this place of confinement. So maybe we lost that when we moved into cities away from, you know, kind oh, of. Oh, so much, right? The, you, uh, live in a, you live in a place where you can't even see life. the sky. Right. That, yeah, right. This is a running theme throughout the Old Testament from Genesis forward of the, the hunter gatherers, the wanderers, and the city dwellers, mm -hmm. and the conflict between them. You see this with Abraham and Lot. Yeah. I'll go down, I'll go right, I'll go down into civilization, and then you go left and you stay wanderers and you see the constant conflict then between those people who live in the cities and those who are coming in because the people in the cities are saying get your cattle get your camels get get your livestock out of here you're mudding up our water supply you're eating all of our crops and the hunter-gatherer is saying you know it's there <laughs> it's for everybody and this conflict then because of water it's all about survival yeah you know basic tribalism yeah, and well, so that's right away from the beginning too, right? Seth is a shepherd, but uh, yes, but Cain is marked, and then Abel. He, he goes away. And what is he's responsible for? For like tools and mm -hmm. musical instruments, I think. And yeah, right, because he's the his people are the first ones to dig into the earth, right? Exactly. Yeah, so to mine the minerals. 
dwelling in these and they, they that's gather a good, in that's a good office yeah that's a good segue though that no longer trusting that god will provide us with our life from the earth we have to dig into the earth and rip it out <laughs> so Again, are you against fossil fuels then <laughs> well i'm just saying in south dakota 210,000 gallons of oil leaked out <laughs> well that's where it belongs right back in the ground Right, exactly. That's what is the builder Bob? Uh, renew, reuse, recycle, or whatever. <laughs> I have no idea. All these people that protested the pipeline being put into South Dakota and who are arrested, and now the thing they were arrested for comes true. That's right. It's like they didn't hmm. want that oil to be taken from the ground with fracking. So right, uh, I just put That's it a back. Interesting thing. There you go. So. <laughs> it's what we do. We take the gift and we turn it into something that we think we're entitled to. Mm. That is the original sin, or take what is not given. So external slavery, distress, sinful guilt, redemption, to be rescued from, to be delivered from, helped out of distress, that narrow place, but also sinful guilt. Hmm. This is another thing that we don't like about Martin Luther, that, Hmm. you know, being a recovering Catholic himself, and if you are a Roman Catholic, you are always in recovery. What does he battle with his whole life? Guilt. I was just talking to a former Roman Catholic the other day. Uh, he's my training partner in Muay Thai. He grew up Roman Catholic. Again, as an adult, believes in God, but not religious, as he says. Mm-hmm. And you listen to his stories of growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, and you say, oh, I get that. <laughs> I, I, too, would say I believe in God, but I'm not religious. Yeah. If I grew up with that much guilt. Like he said, even though he doesn't, you know, he hasn't set foot in a church in years, he still struggles with guilt constantly. Probably just driving by it. He sees the right. Sees the church. And it's like, Meh. well, especially this time day. of year. Yeah, I'm going to miss the feast day. I miss the feast day. You know, I miss right. the that day of obligation. I haven't been to confession. Whatever. And then modern Protestantism has taken what the Roman Catholics did with guilt and mm. put it on steroids. Yeah. And everything you should feel guilty about everything. Mm. Because if you feel if you don't feel guilty about it, then you're sinning. That's pride. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's a gift to be enjoyed. Everything You must feel guilty for using anything and, and taking joy in it. I think this is why conservative Christians are so dogged in their renunciation of taking pride in anything. Mm-hmm. That you can't even say, yeah, I'm really thankful that I have this, this skill. Mm-hmm. Hey, 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 buddy, don't be so proud. It's like, well, shouldn't we rejoice in the gifts that God has given us to serve our neighbor? Easy, easy. Yeah. It probably pushed, we probably pushed guilt so hard in, in Protestantism mm-hmm. that we, we kind of push out shame. Right. So we don't even have shame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't have time for shame because we have to feel guilty about everything. Mm-hmm. You have to feel guilty about what we're thinking well, and what we say. We have to pronounce guilt against everybody of else. Of course, too. because I feel guilty. And even though I believe I'm damned, if I can just find one person who is more damnable than me, Mm-hmm. Maybe I can stand on them as the water rises around me. Mm. It's oh, just a horrible thing. It's like playing Dungeons and Dragons and always rolling a one. <laughs> Critical failure. <laughs> you stabbed yourself with your own sword. Mm. And yet Luther translates salvation, redemption as a rescue from sinful guilt. When someone says, hey, that's sin, you say, "Mm, I don't see sin, I see salvation. That this is, again, something that in Luther that we did not carry forward. And even in his own generation, you can go back and you can read 
his colleagues and students correcting him on saying, easy, buddy, <laughs> let's not get too far out there in this whole freedom thing. Yeah. You know, freedom from external, you know, external slavery, freedom from distress, freedom from sinful guilt. A little guilt's good, right? We got to add a little bit of pepper to the, the mix to make sure we get a little spice, a little kick. Hmm. Can't just be, just can't do sweet stuff. Can't just put cardamom in there. No, we got to, we got to add something that makes it, you know, sweet and spicy. What are you making for Thanksgiving? It sounds like you're Jambalaya working. probably. Oh, there you go. Classic, we classic Thanksgiving every, dish. See. We, we don't like turkey. And unless I'm going to deep fry it, <laughs> I don't really have any interest in turkey. Now, I, I, I don't remember past episodes very well, but I do remember you speaking of turkey. Do <sighs> Yeah. Dark meat. And if, dark I'll eat meat. dark meat yeah. to be polite at someone's house if I'm a guest. Mm. But no, Tur- we, turkey we is, one of, other is that one of those flavorless meats that no, really oh, requires well, external insertion. <laughs> I'll say this. If you kill, if you go out and shoot a t- wild turkey, I'll eat it because they're delicious. Yeah, that's true. But the turkey you get at the store that's been raised, fr- you know, free ranged, <laughs> where it's just a whole bunch of turkey standing on top of each other as they die. No, uh-uh. Because those are so... Those are so mutated <laughs> that the, and and the way that they they hybridize them so that they grow faster than normal mm. and mature faster and the the steroids they put in them to make their breasts bigger and their thighs bigger so there's more meat and the way in which they do it is so unnatural. That's why they don't have any flavor. That's why everything tastes like chicken because chicken has no flavor because they were but grown you, in distress. Yes, right. They needed they were grown to be in redeemed. Distress. They did. Nice, nice. <laughs> Victory. That was some gymnastics. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Set the turkeys free. For the, I, for the for love, love of flavor. God, I swear yeah. I yeah. thought they could fly. <laughs> That's WKRP in Cincinnati, the most infamous Thanksgiving TV episode mm. ever. Now you're going to make me and find it was that. Arthur, was it Arthur C. Carlson? It was Arthur Carlson. He was the, yeah, he was the station manager, the inept station manager. And at, for, a, for a promotion on Thanksgiving, he threw turkeys out of a helicopter <laughs> in, in a supermarket parking lot because he thought they could fly. And, all you, and it's a radio program. So all you hear is the guy, Les Nesman, on the ground saying, oh, for the love of God, as they hit the ground and die. <laughs> oh, that's classic. So good. Oh, that's so good. You can, you can get that on YouTube, too. Thank I'm sure. I'll find it. It'll be in oh, the no, show notes. I go, I go, I show it to my kids every year for sure. Mm. You know what's sad? Speaking of, I'm driving home with my daughter from uh, training this morning and we're listening to Prince. And so we're talking and she asked, you know, is he still alive? And I was explaining mm-hmm. how he died and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I said, he died the same way Michael Jackson died. And my daughter says, who's Michael Jackson? Oh, no. Now, after I corrected the, the swerve, because yeah. I almost went off the road, not yeah. because I, I felt bad for her, I felt bad. For me yeah, as a parent I mean, that she yeah, didn't know who Michael Jackson was. You were ashamed. I, you felt oh, ashamed. Oh, so much yeah. shame. So much shame. I was in distress. <laughs> and I said, he's the king of pop, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so I put it on. I put on, you know, his greatest hits. Okay. And then she says, oh, I know who Michael Jackson is. I always thought this was a girl. <laughs> so I never really identified it was Michael Jackson when she heard Beat It or Thriller or mm-hmm. whatever yeah. it might be bad. She just thought it was a woman. Because he sings in such a high-pitched voice. And so then I had to explain the history of like soul and R&B in the 70s, especially in the high-pitched singers and Curtis Mayfield and whatnot. Mm-hmm, yeah. But it's just, it's amazing when you're a parent and your children say something to you and you go, oh, 
they there's a giant gap in their brain. <laughs> yeah. Where Michael Jackson should be. How does I as a parent overlook this? It's just it's amazing. It's like the other day I'm holding Gita on my lap, my baby, and my my little my littlest son, Halal, he's five. He she was kind of twitchy and stuff and, and kind of crying uh intermittently. And he said, Is she having a nightmare? And I said, No, she's just, you know, she's adjusting and mm-hmm. she's getting hungry. And he said, well, maybe she's having a nightmare and she's, you know, dreaming about monsters. And without even thinking about it, I said, well, she doesn't know what a monster is, baby, because she's never seen one. And I realized a baby can't have a nightmare about monsters because they've never seen or heard or read about what a monster is. That's a very strange thing. Uh, yeah. Isn't it? So I'd never thought about that 46 years on earth. And I'd never really thought about the fact that until you are introduced to a monster, mm. you actually can't dream about it because you've never seen it. Mm. And then I said to Annie, my wife, I said when we were, I was telling her about this because it was so remarkable, the only thing that distinguishes my wife from the nurse who took my daughter's blood at the hospital is pain versus comfort. Because the nurse who came and drew her blood had a very nice voice, very sweet woman, held her very gently, and then jabbed her in the heel and squeezed until blood came out. And for a seven-day-old child, she has no idea what's happening to her. She has no vocabulary. Mm-hmm. She can't even really see. So for her, everything is just pain and discomfort and distress. And, or I'm sorry, yeah, discomfort. Or comfort, peace, and, and uh, safety. So when a baby has a nightmare, what exactly are they dreaming about? Do they do they do they have nightmares in images or do they have nightmares like their auditory nightmares? Yeah, or abstract, just like emotional. Right, the, a feeling exactly mm-hmm. that they're reliving in their brain that feeling of pain that they got because their foot was pricked. Like that's what they see. That's what they experience. Mm-hmm. Which has nothing to do with this podcast, but I just want to share that because those are just these random things that happen, and you say, "Huh, yeah." There's a gap there, and not only for the child are you filling in the gap, but for yourself as a parent, they're constantly forcing you to think. About how to be a parent. They tried to explore that a little bit at the beginning of Inside Out, you know, the kind of development of emotions being actually the emotional development was built upon an experience, an external experience. Right. right? So you don't know what anger is until you experience something that causes anger. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing you learn as a parent, too, is your children, well, at least my children, (laughs) are born angry. It's a personality trait that we all share and you can see it very early. And I know by, and you know this too, because we both have many children. Mm. When you, when you have your first child, you're so not formed as a parent, (laughs) you have no clue what you're doing whatsoever. The first child is just trial and error. And I spend most of my time apologizing to my oldest for the way he's turned out at 14. (laughs) There's, there's a lot of dents and scars that run deep, deep into his soul. Mm-hmm. And that's 100% our fault. Yeah. <laughs> because you just don't know. And you learn. And with every child, you learn more. And you mature. And you grow older with them. And you learn how to let them tell you how to be their parent rather than thinking you need to parent them. Mm. And, and forcing them into this, hey, you have to be just like your brother. Well, no, okay. because you're, you're a girl, first of all. And you're your own person. But there are personality traits that then still remain. They, they insist upon each child. And at least in my family, anger is the big one. Hmm. And so as a parent, you, you recognize 
there are things that you teach them, you model for them as they, as they get older and that forms them emotionally, psychically and so forth. But there's also just personality traits that they're born with. And there's all you can do with that is curb it and, mm-hmm. and try and rein it in for them yeah. so they don't turn into sociopaths. Yeah, genetic predisposition. Thank you, right. mom and dad. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that's the, the remarkable thing as a parent that I carry over into pastoral vocation mm. is rather than tell my congregation how to be Christians, I'm asking them the question, how do you need me to pastor you right now? Yeah. So that it's not a systematic approach. Well, this works for everybody because it has to. Like we were saying earlier about Luther reading a book of exegesis as a seminary student, as a monk himself, and asking the question, well, I don't really think this is right. But having all of his professors say, well, of course it's right. This is accepted wisdom. This is the way it has to be. (laughs) Likewise, as a parent, at least I do, I've learned, and it's made me more humble, which which is, again, going back to what I said about can you can you say that without feeling guilty about saying I'm I'm grateful for how humble I am, <laughs> which is kind of a smug thing to say, um, or at least you have to say it tongue in cheek. But it does. Being a parent humbles you, yeah. and the more children you have, the more it humbles you because the demand on you is greater. Yeah. It increases exponentially to not treat all your children exactly the same or hold them to the old standard, but rather treat them each as a person, and. It's easy just to throw them all into the same bag and say, no, you're all the same. Uh, but to treat each of them as individuals, to take each of them in their own person, it requires so much of you as a parent because you have to just focus in on them as a person and not right. say, well, your sister did this, so you do this too, right? Yeah. Or your sister did this because this is what she was thinking, so that must be your motivation. Right. So learn how to listen um, yeah. res- and respond in, in the way that they would like. Um, right given that it's helpful and not harmful. To and them. I would even say, I would even go so far to say then to bring it back around through this is that your vocation as a parent, for example, is what teaches you to listen to scripture. Mm. Because when you're young, I was talking, we were talking about this last night um, because doing two martial arts isn't enough for me. So now I'm doing three. And so I started wrestling last night and I wrestled in elementary school, but I haven't wrestled since then. So getting back into wrestling to improve my jujitsu was just fantastic. That, When you're young, and you see this a lot in martial arts when you're training, young people tend to rush through techniques they don't don't know how to do. Mm -hmm. As if, if I just go really fast and I get to the end, I'm doing it right. And they skip steps then. And what what maturity teaches you is how to, not to speed up if you don't know what to do, but to slow down. And now that I'm the elder statesman in my gym... One of my responsibilities is to say to like the guy I was training with last night, you outweigh me by 70 pounds. So when you twist my arm behind my back, go slow. <laughs> because my, my shoulder was not made to go that direction. So if you go through this fast, you're going to dislocate my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that sometimes with younger guys because they think, well, I don't know it. So if I just do it faster or like in Muay Thai, if I hit harder, that's the same as hitting faster. Mm. When actually, when you hit harder, you tighten up and you're hitting slower with less power. And the more relaxed you are, the faster you punch and the more power you throw. And only maturity can teach you that. Mm-hmm. And doing it over and over again and being told over and over again, you're doing it wrong, relax. You're doing it wrong, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Mm. And when you're younger and you're reading the Bible, for example, or you're reading theology, we have a tendency to bull rush through it. 
Yeah. Because it's, it's, my son is like this, my seven-year-old, he is so intelligent that he does math in his head. He's in first grade, but he's doing fifth grade math. And his teacher now is saying, I need to see your work. And he's saying, my work is in my head. Intellectually, my seven-year-old can't comprehend why he has to show his work when he can do it in his head faster. So writing it down slows him down. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those struggles of parenting is to say, I know you can do it in your head and that's amazing and never be ashamed of that. But your teacher needs to see how you're thinking, how you're getting to that answer. She doesn't understand how you're getting to that answer. But for a seven-year-old, he's saying, but my teacher's smarter than me, right? Well, being smart is kind of relative. It depends on what you mean. Yeah, right. Yeah. So when you're young... Yeah, being a good teacher, it may not be right. a matter of knowledge. It may just be a matter of experience. Exactly. And so exegesis is that way, at least for me. Mm-hmm. And like I said, that's why I spend more and more time with Luther, the exegete, as I get older, because Luther forces me to slow down mm-hmm. and question my own theological presuppositions and conclusions to say, okay, over the last 20 years, this is your theological presupposition regarding this text of Scripture. And this, I, we've talked about this before off air, and I think even on air, is when you read the Lutheran Confessions, for example, are they a faithful exposition of Scripture, or do you subject the Scriptures to the Lutheran Confessions mm. and say, well, since they're faithful exposition, every verse of Scripture must have its equivalent in the Lutheran Confessions? Mm-hmm. Versus asking, what is the context of this statement in the Lutheran Confessions, and what biblical text are they drawing on to make that assertion? Yeah, we 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 flip that around too often. Yeah, yeah. So I there's, think. I mean, I do this in the sermon for tomorrow, which I'm a little out of practice. So. Um, but there's a way that uh, – there's a, a phrase, kingdom of heaven, right? So you say, well, where right. do I know kingdom of heaven from? Well, I know that from the catechism, right? And what does the catechism mm-hmm. teach us the kingdom of heaven is? Okay, fine. And then try to import that into the text, which mm-hmm. in this case works okay, <laughs> the text I'm preaching on. Yeah. But, but, but actually the context of the reading tells you what the kingdom of heaven is. We're talking – you know, what when he was telling the parable right. actually provides the information you need to know – um, mm-hmm. To understand what he means by kingdom of heaven, there, you, know, you don't need the. You actually don't need the catechism to import that meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And with Luther, the example of Luther as an exegete is he constantly submits himself to scripture. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't say, "Well, I translated it this way in 1521," and that's it. He's constantly going back and submitting himself to the Word of God and asking God Himself, yeah. "Did I interpret this correctly according to the Spirit?" Or did I wrestle this word away from the spirit and translate it in the direction that I wanted it to go? Yeah. Which yeah. he was often accused of by his opponents. Right. Well, and, and uh, now how do I understand, you know, this, this text or specifically a word based mm-hmm. off of all the other scripture that I've translated? Correct. Or read, you know. Well, and to give you, give you the listeners uh, context, when he starts translating in 1521, he's right there in the heat of the Reformation. He's now infamous but he's single <laughs> and still wearing the monk's cowl. Mm-hmm. It's not until 1525 that he gets married and essentially gives up the monk's cowl and then starts having children. And then he, his daughter dies uh, in the early 1530s. His first kid dies. And then later his second child dies. What was that? Marguerite? And, was that, was she yeah. First? Yeah. Marguerite when she was 15, I think it was, or 13. And that's in Luther's letters of spiritual counsel. If you want to read that letter where he talks about her death, it's devastating. If I ever want to cry, I just go read it. 
because as a parent of a daughter who shares my personality and my brainwave, um, the idea, you know, just the suggestion that I would have to like sit by her deathbed and preach her into the kingdom, that crushes me. Yeah. Like that just rings me out. Yeah. And yet you can see, and Luther himself will even refer to this uh, later, uh, anecdotally, that getting married changed him as an exegete. And mm-hmm. having children changed him as an exegete because it changed the way he sees the world. Yeah. Because in the same way that we said at the beginning that Yeshua, salvation, is outside help, when Luther is married and has children, he is torn out of himself. And now he love, his love is located outside himself. It's not love for an idea like the Reformation or an idea like um, a, a debate with Cajetan or Zwingli or whoever it might be, but rather it's an actual person outside of him mm-hmm. that his vocation now is, it exists in such a way that his heart is bound to another yeah, in a very real concrete way. Well, and you see, you see this even in a lot of uh, the practices of the Lutheran church and that mm-hmm. um, the way that this, this in particular um, pastoral ministry is conducted by us, I think is informed by the fact that many of us are fathers, right? So, yeah, right. So yeah. We're, th- we're thinking of what is, not only best for people in an abstract way, but what what is specifically what is it that that my children need, right? Correct. Um, you know, or what has God given specifically me mm-hmm. um, to give to them? Correct. And, and then that informs the way that 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 we operate. So maybe uh, maybe that's why we're not as um, inf- we don't emphasize guilt as strongly as the Roman system does. Because that's a lot of mom, mommy guilt, maybe, <laughs> by those priests. Well, I think inter- existential guilt. I think I, I think that's a great point you raised, though, is that I think when Lutherans stop being Lutherans is when things go intranos inside mm. of us yeah. versus externos outside of us. Yeah. And I think that's your point, is that when guilt is existential, that's that something we wrestle with psychically. It's mm. a thought yeah. that obsesses us or occupies, or it's a desire that we just can't seem to you know escape from or, or or subdue but instead guilt is the person outside of us that we didn't love yeah. for, you know we didn't show charity towards right. the least the last the lost, lost and the dead that uh, f- when we're when we're functioning as lutherans when we're, we're firing on all cylinders our guilt is outside of us our guilt is nailed to the cross mm-hmm. and vocationally then we we experience guilt not in relation to ourselves because I didn't live up to the expectations of myself in relation to God, mm-hmm. as if my works influence God's salvation for me. They don't. But rather, the guilt is in the fact that I didn't love my neighbor as I love myself. And if I don't love my neighbor as myself, maybe then there is something wrong with me that I can't love myself. Yeah. That is, love myself as a creature of God, love myself as one for whom Jesus died and says, you are my beloved. Mm-hmm. That... You, it's not, you shouldn't feel guilty. You're not supposed to feel guilty about loving yourself in relation to Christ because he names you beloved. He That's gives right. you that identity. And therefore, in relation to your neighbor, you can, again, experience and enjoy joy and satisfaction that they are your love, but they are also your guilt. They are that mirror that God holds up to you to convict you of your sin. Mm-hmm. And that when we turn in on ourselves, that's when we start pointing fingers and saying, stop doing that. You're being naughty. That's a sin. You're not holy. Versus, no, in relation to my neighbor, I'm the one who's shown to be unholy and impious and unloving. Not my neighbor. And the thing that that causes me to point at my neighbor and say, that's bad, 
Well, how do I recognize that as being bad mm-hmm. if I myself don't struggle with that sin? Well, if it's outside in your neighbor, then it's objective and not it's not purely subjective. Exactly. Like your own understanding. And Saint, we've talked about this before, too, that St. Augustine points out that when I hate my neighbor for the sin of pride, it's because I myself struggle with the sin of pride. That's mm-hmm. how I recognize it, and that's yeah. why it irritates me. Mm-hmm. It's not that he being proud irritates me. It's the fact that he's a reminder. He's a mirror that shows me my own pride. Yeah. Again, we were talking about this before uh, Muay Thai this morning, that the guys that the young guys are the ones who will talk a lot of smack mm. and and joke around in that way, and the older guys don't. Because, one – a part of martial arts is learning respect for each other, learning yeah. respect for your opponent because your opponent is there to make you better. Right. And so talking smack just has no place in, in real martial arts. And talking smack, you're just eventually going to get punched and knocked out because there's <laughs> always going to be somebody that's better than you. So you don't really have a, a, a leg to stand on when it comes to talking smack. And that, again, as you get older, you learn that all of that smack talk is a projection of your own insecurities. Yep. And you're insecure because the person you're talking it to scares you. And to try and diffuse that tension inside yourself, you try and diminish them. You try to make them less than they are in your own perspective, in your own uh, eyes. And that if you don't understand that, you get mad at them for talking that way to you and you, you threaten them or you challenge them. And then your insecurities come out because mm-hmm. you don't want to be challenged in that way mm-hmm. versus if you're secure in who you are as a person, you don't need to respond because you know later we're going to spar and we'll settle this. Yeah. Like water and that's off the, the way ducks it works. back, right? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm 46 years old. There's literally nothing you can say to me that I haven't already heard <laughs> or thought about myself. Yeah, exactly. But when you're 23, you haven't. You're mm-hmm. still, you're still, your functional lobe in your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25. So at 23, you're not even, your brain isn't even fully developed yet. So that I explains a lot about my. Uh, a hundred percent. My 14-year-old is basically an ape. That's what he is. He is basically a rhesus monkey. With, with hormones. Uh, with, fun- with hormones, exactly. <laughs> and so you're like, well, of course he does that. He's basically a monkey. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but no, it's perspective. And, and I, you gain more perspective, hopefully, God willing, you gain more perspective in relation to your neighbor, in relation to scripture, in relation to Christ, as you get older, <clears throat> because the older you get, the more often you're confronted with your own fallibility, your own sin. Yeah. And children and spouses and so forth are a constant reminder, you're not who, you're, who God intends you to be, mm-hmm. not yet, not this side of the resurrection. So <laughs> coming back around to the text then, redemption from external slavery is to be rescued from distress, from being you know, tied up in that tight place, not able to move, not enjoying wide open spaces, which is the biblical definition of freedom, and a freedom from guilt. Mm-hmm. That, again, guilt in the sense of the judge has banged his gavel and said, you are guilty, you get the death penalty. You don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to worry about the end times. Because for us, for we who are baptized... Our salvation's outside of us in the person of Jesus. Yeah, and it, and it comes auto, to us through declaration, right? Exactly. It's literally out of our hands, mm-hmm. which is why we are constantly stressed and try and find, turn inward, as we were talking about, we turn inward to try and find some foothold inside of ourselves to say to God, but what about this? Yeah. Isn't, doesn't this count for anything? Yeah, I've wondered about you know, that with like somebody who gets a presidential pardon. You're like, yeah, but they know they did it. 
Mm-hmm. So they're probably right. still that probably doesn't help much. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> not no, spiritually 100%. speaking, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So being rescued, salvation and redemption meaning to be rescued from sinful guilt and distress. And on the whole, Luther renders the sense then of the original text. That is what in the original Hebrew, salvation, redemption means to be re- redeemed, to be delivered from external slavery, from distress and from sinful guilt. But then, Borenkamp continues, in a series of passages, the Christian meaning of the word interjects another tone, as in connection with the Hebrew word nefesh, mm. uh, who delivered my soul, nefesh, soul, breath, life, from all trouble, 2 Samuel 4, 9, 1 Kings one twenty nine. Luther translates this, who delivered my soul from all trouble, instead of who has delivered my life, that is me, out of all distress. So see also Job thirty three twenty eight. Even though this may not seem like a big deal, think about it in these terms, practically speaking. He delivers my soul from all trouble. Luther locates in his Magnificat commentary, the soul is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's the dwelling place of faith. Now, to deliver my soul from trouble is to deliver my conscience from trouble. And in a postmodern sense, your conscience is an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other shoulder, and they're both, you know, arguing for control of you. But Luther's not modern, he's not postmodern, he's pre-modern. He understands conscience to mean our sense of standing in relation to God and our neighbor, what you and I were just talking about, actually, in regards to guilt. That conscience is, how do you understand yourself in relation to your neighbor? How do you feel in relation to your neighbor? And how do you feel in relation to God? Mm-hmm. Do you feel guilty in relation to God? Then you have a troubled conscience. Do you feel not guilty in relation to God? Then you have a clear conscience, a, a clean conscience. And for Luther, this is the whole point of pastoral care, is to unburden your conscience of guilt. Yeah, to deliver to set, a clean conscience. To deliver a clean conscience through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the forgiveness of sins given for you. Mm-hmm. That in the forgiveness of sins announced in Jesus' name, you are free from all guilt. So it's not the release of a of a feeling of guilt, but it's actually no, the uh, actual removal guilt. of the yeah of the thing that keeps us uh, out of relationship with God. This in distress that keeps us cramped and, and tight, and mm-hmm. so we can't. We're not free and flowing. We're not smooth as you know. We're not smooth and relaxed, and therefore we're not enjoying the power of the gospel. But rather, we're all tensed up. Mm-hmm. And we can enjoy the power of the gospel because we think the power of the gospel is the power of sin and damnation then. Yeah. So this is key for Luther then. Your soul is delivered from trouble versus he delivered my life. He delivered me out of all distress. Well, what if you're in prison and you don't get the, the governor's pardon and you're going yeah. to the lecture chair mm-hmm. and yet you believe Jesus is your savior? What about the person in hospice who has less than three months to live because of the leukemia? they're not physically being delivered out of all distress. In fact, we talk about this in Confirmation a lot when we go through the first article of the Creed, that we ought to thank, praise, serve, and obey God for all this that he does for us. Well, but what if you don't enjoy good weather? What if you don't have good health? What if you don't have a wife and children? What if you don't have a job? What if the devil has crushed you so that you don't enjoy a good conscience? How are you to thank, praise, serve, God? Because then, well... That's why I think praise, serve, and obey God isn't gospel unless you go through the second article first. Hmm. That without the second article, thank, praise, serve, and obey God is done through gritted teeth. Yeah. Because you have, to th- you have to do all those things in the absence of what you are promised in the first article. It almost becomes an intellectual exercise, right? Yes. 
Right. You know, I just, and this I ha- is why Dr. Nagel, I still, the, Dr. Nagel nails this of saying, start in the third article, then go into the second, then go into the first. Because you're then talking about the con- commandments. concrete reality and it's like exactly. experiential too. Not, exactly. Not, and not the experience of the flesh, but, but the experience right. of, of grace and mercy and peace. Well, and think Jesus. of it th- in this way too, that Second Samuel 4, 9, this would be about David, would it not? I don't know. Right? Sounds good. Sure. Regardless, I was, it just, like you were saying, it, that David is delivered from distress more than one time. <laughs> and that if you read Second Samuel, First Samuel, if you read about, not just David, but you read about Solomon. Solomon, for all of his wisdom, is constantly in distress because he's a bonehead. <laughs> And even though he's wise, he uses his wisdom to chase after other gods and set up false worship and build all of this stuff and use his dad as an excuse to flaunt his power and influence and, and yeah. wealth. Yeah. That it's not David's delivered from distress one time for all time. David's constantly in distress because of his own sin. And therefore, it's not one time that God delivers me out of my life. He delivers me from distress. But I need my soul delivered from trouble. Because in the end, I'm going to die. In the end, I'm going to suffer distress. In the end, I'm going to be cut loose from my baptism because of temptation and sin. And I don't need God to say, but I've already rescued you once. What more do you want from me? You know, I, I, gave, I healed your cancer once. If the tumors came back, that's your problem now, man. No, what we need to know is that in the midst of cancer, in the midst of prison, in the midst of just, you know, being bullied by people online, mm-hmm. that regardless of all that, God's faithfulness remains untouched. Right. That the the work of the Spirit in and through me remains unresisted. That baptism is still unconditional. And that the bullying doesn't define me. The disease doesn't define me. Where I end up, you know, whether I'm locked up in the house or I'm locked up in the prison or I'm locked up in my job or wherever it may be that I'm locked in. That's not the that's not your identity. That's not the thing that defines you. But rather you're suffering on account of sin and temptation, not because of it, in the sense of God punishing you. And I think, again, this goes back to what we were saying about guilt. Luther grows up in this system that, are you sick? Well, it's because you sinned and God is punishing you. Do you, you, know, do you have a disease? Well, that's because you sinned and God is punishing you. Yeah. Which, which, who sinned? Their, his parents? Or did he? Right. He, yeah, him or his parents that this should happen to him. Exactly. And Jesus points to himself. <laughs> not not the he doesn't give him the answer. No. So that's the difference, the 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 minor nuance in which Luther approaches these to say, well, if I translate it the way that it's translated in the Vulgate, wouldn't that then mean that this saying that God is going to deliver me from all my problems? Yeah. When when Jesus himself renounces that temptation when the devil offers it to him. Yeah. Everybody will worship you and the angels will catch you. You'll never have to suffer. And Jesus rejects that. And of course, that's why we reject Jesus. Because we want those things. Mm-hmm. We want what the devil offers. We want it more than anything. It's what we spend our entire life chasing. But it's not what he promised. But it's not what he promised. Exactly. What he promises is what Luther says. He will deliver my soul from all trouble. Mm. Small accents, Barncom writes, also means something here. Like the Vulgate, but different <laughs> from some more recent interpreters. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. And he's talking about the RSV and other Bibles. Mm -hmm. Luther served the New Testament idea of prevenient grace 
and thus the use of this passage at baptism when he rendered the perfect tense, we'll talk about that in a second, of Isaiah 43, 1 as a perfect tense, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Boom, goes the dynamite. Hmm. That's what I, we were just talking about. He translates, I have redeemed you in a perfect tense. Meaning what? Something that happened in the past mm. that has ongoing effects in the present tense and into the future. Right. Oh, I love when Luther does that. <laughs> yeah. And how do we render perfect in, in English? Uh, we don't. Yeah. This is the problem with baptism now saves you. Baptism saved you, is saving you, will save you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> this is why people will say things like, well, just because you're baptized doesn't mean one saved, always saved. That's uh, true. Yeah. Hebrews 6 even talks about this. However, you're approaching the, st- the question the wrong direction. You're looking for a way to cut baptism off, yeah. to limit it, to qualify it. And that's your approach vector. That's the old Adam in a nutshell. Ah, this is too free. We got to put a fence around this. Can, you know, rein this baptism now saves you stuff in. It does save you, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's the grammatical negation of everything that comes before. Yeah, and somehow we, we think that that uh, baptism loses its efficacy when it's outside the church, mm-hmm. you know? So like somebody falls away from faith or they, they stop coming to church or they, whatever, they right. have some kind of... As if those Christ. are synonymous, by the way. You're right, I know. Some kind to of... The, to the Roman, to my training partner, right? That I said, he grew up Roman Catholic. He still believes Jesus is his savior. He just refuses to set foot in a church. Mm, right. It's like if you had my dad, who's a Vietnam vet, watch Saving Private Ryan or Platoon, you know, he was there. He's not going back. No. He remembers what it was like. He, there's, you just can't get somebody to go back into something that was so torturous and so destructive to them on so many different levels. Right. You can't just say to a, a Roman Catholic, hey, just come back to church. We're different. <laughs> well, I was thinking more of along the lines of you know, somebody who walks away from the church for whatever reason but comes back mm-hmm. later. And they say, well, you know, I've had this experience. Well, Pastor, why am I back? What happened? You know, yeah. How did that happen? And I was like, <laughs> Your baptism? <laughs> You're like, right. What? It's like, what do we believe? What does the scripture teach? Yeah. What, what do you receive in, who do you receive in baptism? You know, As, is it possible that the spirit was working, still working through you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that the that the word still had its effect? Maybe you don't remember that much of it, but there right. was some. You know? well, and this, this thing by Borncom where he says, Luther serves the New Testament idea of prevenient grace. Mm-hmm. Is something else that bothers us. Because prevenient grace means it's kind of what he always intended for you to have. <laughs> That's why he says grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ and Moses, no, not so much. John chapter 1. That Jesus came to do what? To seek and save the lost. That's his whole purpose in coming. Not to judge us and punish us. That's that's not his primary work. That's what Luther would call the alien work of God or the strange work of God. Right. That, that's not Jesus' primary purpose. But if you want him to judge you, he will. Yeah. The Pharisees and religious leaders, they also are named as receivers of the gift. Mm-hmm. Grace is for them as well. God's unconditional mm-hmm. love and favor is for them as well. And yet they beg Jesus to judge them. They invite it. They beg for it. And so he gives it to them. Like the lawyer who stands up speaking for all the religious, you know, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, you want to play this game? Okay, I can play this game. Right. You know, and, but notice Jesus lets him judge himself. 
This is really the key point. In order to play that game, you have to actually deny the the gift and the giver of the gift, right? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. That God isn't judging you, but rather, and this is the tragedy of sin, is that we are inviting God to judge us by pushing the gift back across the table yeah. and refusing to open it. Yeah. Why don't you judge me by my own merit? My own <laughs> right. So, and and that's what Luther is, this is what Bourne comes pointing to about Luther, that he serves the New Testament idea of prevenient grace, that grace has always been there, mm-hmm. and that it's we who reject it, not God who pulls it away from us. You know, God isn't Cthulhu. He's not one of the ancient ones. He's not going to rip, you know, come through some tear in the universe yeah. and be like, ta-da, warned you. <laughs> but rather, he's the good shepherd. He's the wonderful counselor. He's all the things that are that are named in Isaiah that that so are so wonderfully laid out in the Messiah. It's about that time of year. Yeah, and the treasury, the treasury has uh, appointed this time of year. Uh, was it Jeremiah thirty two thirty three? Is what we've been going through. And he's talking right. about like the desolation of the cities and whatnot. And then and then it mm-hmm. just switches gears and it's like, but there's the restoration, and that's, that's what funny. it's all about. It's it's you know. There'll be shepherds and there'll be someone on David's throne forever and all, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's back and well, forth. Well, since you mentioned the word treasury and desolation in, in one thought, you <laughs> triggered me to think about The Hobbit. And, <laughs> and it goes to the smog. point, too, that we tend to treat God as if he's smog and we have to sneak into his treasury and steal for ourselves mm-hmm. grace. Mm-hmm. And that he will, of course immediately be awakened to the fact that this is the story of Prometheus stealing stealing fire from the gods. Mm -hmm. That's all the Hobbit is. It's Prometheus ascending the mountain to steal fire from the gods. That if we, if we have to sneak in and get grace from God, we got to go get it. And if we take too much that he will judge us, he will chase after us. He will come after us and take that grace back from us because we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it Mm -hmm. versus no, you don't have to break into the treasure hoard. He throws the doors open and just walks through the streets, just throwing his money to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I know that nilly like seeds. (laughs) I know we're, we're jumping from Tolkien to Lewis, but uh, obviously uh, Narnia is not, not quite as well executed as uh, Lord of the Rings. But Mm -hmm. uh, I think Lewis gets it right when he brings Bacchus into the story. And, yes, because that's the character of Bacchus. He's just—I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. he's a drunk, but but he's he's a party guy. He's he's having a good right. time, and he's and he tears the kids out of school, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> which yes. which I really appreciated. You know, bring him out of school and let's have a good time. You know, and, and that's the Jesus. That's how that's Jesus. Right, that's and there it is, us. right there. You just named the most offensive thing about Jesus mm. is that that he's Bacchus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a party in animal, this, in the sense of. What is the primary image of heaven? <laughs> Well-aged wine and... Yeah, it's a celebration that lasts for eternity. Yeah. And where is Jesus most often found? Mm. Socialized. He even says to the tax collector, we're going to have a party at your house tonight, so get ready. <laughs> That's right. He starts his ministry making booze, and he ends his ministry serving booze. <laughs> and yes, I'm sorry, Baptist, but that's the truth. You can't deny it. The gospel's pointed out that even, again, in the scripture... Mm-hmm. Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. He is the second person of the Trinity. The, the whole point of him pointing to the Lord's Supper, the last day, his whole ministry being this, this undercurrent, this subtext of the celebration. Yeah. That I'm with you, so this is a party. This is drawn straight out of Scripture because he's the author of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So that running through the entire Bible is why won't you come into the party? Why do you have to act like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal? Yeah. The doors are open. The party's going on. The inheritance was yours to begin with. 
And yet you're going to be a party pooper because I didn't throw you a party. <laughs> Why well, never? I didn't need to throw you a party because you had everything. I gave everything to you. You could have a party every night if you want to. Okay. The only person judging anybody here is you. Hmm. You've been off the hook since the beginning, but you insist on judging yourself. It's like having your eyes judging, closed or, or being blind, really. Right. 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 It's like, la, 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 I'm not going to listen. Mm-hmm. Fingers in the ear, eyes closed. And so we would rather err on the side of guilt because when Jesus shows up, what do we say? Oh, it's a Bacchanal. Hmm. He's tempting us to sin and be all lusty and to use our freedom to sin. No, in the presence of the Lord, you cannot possibly do that. I'm saying that unconditionally. In the presence of Christ, you cannot sin. Mm -hmm. That's why you're with him. (laughs) Because he was tempted in every way like us and yet without sin. But our problem with that, our problem with that is that we think to not sin is to not have fun. Exactly. <laughs> that it's not, exactly. not going to be an enjoyable experience. Right. It's, it's going to, you know, we'll be like, uh, oh, I don't know, Mormons or uh, <laughs> the Amish. Well, just like no TV the Jack, and Yeah, no the fun. Jack Mormons, right? Yeah, exactly. Is that you, you can't have fun ever. It's a sin to enjoy yourself, period. And that's why no one, that's why they don't smile in any pictures. Mm. When you look at those old pictures, they're not smiling. Why? Because it's a sin. Mm. <laughs> and no. our life is terrible. Yeah. No joy, it's no delight. No joy, exactly. Mm-hmm. And yet, the, the, like we said, the subtext of the gospel, the subtext of all of Scripture is there is a celebration going on, and we are all invited. Mm-hmm. And the only people that refuse to go in are those who refuse to accept that they don't have to do anything to get into the party. Yeah. It's crazy. Or like the, the, the parable of the wedding banquet when the man says, well, I didn't wear the clothes you gave me. I wear my own clothes in here. Yeah. Like, dude, <laughs> you're wearing rags and I gave you a $5,000 suit to wear Yeah, for free. That's all you had to do is put on the suit and trust that that's all it took. And yeah. you couldn't even do that. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Well, you know, I, th- I think we, I mean, we think of Jesus' ministry as being so, oh, serious or stoic or. or right. And, and then especially you think about it, the, all the parables he's telling during Holy Week um, you know, even at Gethsemane, or is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's at Gethsemane. Um, they, they seem to us very intense, and yet they're actually pretty funny. <laughs> very much so. Or at He's least constantly out, making fun outrageous. of the disciples. Yeah, and they're outrageous. And it's like, I mean, what, what, uh, what's the text I'm doing? Matthew 25, 14 or something like that uh, for tomorrow. And that, I mean, what uh, Lord is going to give to his servants uh, talent? 6,000 days wage, you know, here, <laughs> yeah, right. here, here's a, uh, you know, here's 15 years labor. I'm just going to give this to you now. I, I don't right. know when I'm going to be back. All right. And, uh, <laughs> right. you know, have a good time. Exactly. <laughs> and then here, oh, the, you, you get five times that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get two times that. So I, five times 15, I don't even know what that is. Right. You know, but this is a lifetime's labor, you know, just, you know, have some fun with it. It's like, you're serious. This is not a real story. <laughs> exactly. You know? What kind of moron? Well, that's 75 years worth of wages. Yeah, exactly. Which means that your money will outlast you. Right, right. That means right. grace will outlast uh-huh. you. Uh-huh. Which it has to because at some point you're going to be dead and you can't have faith. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. you just... can't work, can't think, can't speak. So then what are you going to do? So Hope I mean, the, the, best? O- the only guy who has a problem with it is the guy who just takes his 15 years labor and he just puts puts it in the ground uh, mm-hmm. and doesn't do anything with it. And goes back to work. And goes back to work. Yeah, exactly. 
It's like, I don't need the gift. I, you're kind of a mean guy, actually. Right. I've, you know, I've, right. I've seen how hard you can be. And mm-hmm. no, I, don't, I don't want the stuff that you've got for me. And he's the guy that's, that ends up being judged, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So it's not fear not because I redeemed you, Mm-mm. past tense. Now let's see what you do with it. I'll, you know, I'll call the play and we'll see how you, <laughs> how you execute. Yeah. But rather, I that? have, yeah. perfect tense, redeemed you. I have, I am... Mm-hmm. And I will have redeemed you. Mm-hmm. You, it, that's just the way it is. <laughs> There's no arguing with it. Yeah. So he continues. Then the motif of salvation history, Heilsgeschichte in German. Mm. The motif of salvation history is particularly strong in the use of the abstract word redemption, especially in Psalm 111 verse 9, 130 verse 7, and Isaiah 45 verse 17. And Luther, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:55, and the Vulgate transformed God's question threateningly directed at Ephraim in Hosea 13, 14 into a mighty promise. And here we have an example. And we can kind of, yeah, we're near the bottom paragraph here. So in the modern translation that Borenkamp is citing, should I free them from the underworld, redeem them from death? Where are your plagues, O death? Where are your agonies, O underworld? Now here's Luther. But I shall redeem them from hell. Death, I shall be poison to you. Hell, I shall be a pestilence to you. Mm. In fact, you know what that sounds an awful lot like? It sounds like John Donne in his Holy Sonnets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, death. I know it sounded familiar. You know, sure. Yes. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Comma. Oh, mm-hmm. death, where is thy sting? And uh, in the famous play Wit, which is based on John Donne's poems, uh, the professor explains to the student, nothing separates life from life everlasting but a comma, a breath. Hmm. That's the promise. The promise is the only thing that separates you permanently from Jesus is one breath, a comma. That's what death is. It's a comma. I tell that to everybody now. Yeah. Especially in the hospital. It's like a pause. Well, 100%. Pause, pause button. I, especially in the hospital or hospice, I say that to them. And 100% of the time over the last 10 years... They have peace. Mm. But the gospel is, he's not dead, he's asleep. And right. since no one's come back from the dead in the present tense to tell us what's on the other side, we can die in faith and trust that Jesus was raised from the dead ahead of us mm. and that we will be raised also. But I'm still in the flesh. Mm. And I'm still aware of the fact that before I was born, I... I didn't know, I don't know what I, what, what, what was going on. And after I'm dead, I don't know what's going on either. There was a time when I didn't exist and there'll be a time when I don't exist. And in between, I'm constantly aware of that and I have no control over it. Yeah. When it happens, where it happens, how it happens. Mm-mm. And that creates so much, again, distress, so much anxiety in us that we're always in this tension between, well, I don't know, you know, I came from back there and then I'm going towards there somewhere but I don't know when or, or how long I have. Mm-hmm. And so many people then, what they define as life is just trying not to die mm. versus the perfect tense. Nothing separates you from the resurrection. Nothing separates you from Christ, but a breath, a pause, a comma. That's it. Yeah. It's not a thousand years, but rather a thousand years is a day mm. <laughs> in relation to Christ. So then the motif of salvation is very strong then in how Luther and Paul follow the translation, I will redeem them, perfect tense. I will poison, I will be poisoned to death, perfect tense. I will be a pestilence to hell, perfect tense. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Whereas the, the modern translation, 
you know, our listeners can't see this, but is a it, question. It's a, should yeah, I? It's a question. Yeah, it's a, it's a possibility. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but not a promise. It's it's literally begging the question. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> should I? Yeah. Well, it would be kind of nice. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's versus it's, Luther. I will. Yeah, it's more Eastern. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's just a possibility. And as we were speaking earlier about conscience, it binds your conscience. Mm-hmm. Questions bind your conscience because the old Adam always errs on the side of the law, on the side of legalism. And when you err on the side of the law, it's always, you didn't, you did. Yeah. You didn't do enough. You did too much. You should feel guilty about that. Are you sure you did that to the best? Are you sure you're not proud? You know, are you sure you're not doing this for selfish motives? Of course you're doing it mm-hmm. for selfish motives. We don't do anything if it's not for a selfish motive. Mm-hmm. That's true. Whereas Luther completely forgoes the question altogether and says, it's not a question, it's a perfect verb. Yeah. I, I'm going to do it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm going to do it. So the words related to redemption naturally have a particularly timeless force in the personal piety of the Psalter. There you go. Luther used them here, too, for liberation from external, outside distress, outside tyranny, outside enemies. And its distinction from rescue is based on other Hebrew verbs, not on a distinction in subject matter as with salvation and help. Nor was this differentiation in general influenced by the revision, which is a lot of words. That's Germans for you. So if you don't understand that, that's okay. Again, all he's saying is is repeating what Bornkamm pointed out earlier, that is, Luther is following the piety of the Psalter, mm-hmm. that redemption, salvation, Yeshua is to be rescued from external distress, external tyranny, external enemies, in the sense of my soul will be delivered from trouble, in a perfect tense sort of way, past, present, and future. And the distinction he draws out of that is the rescue. <laughs> and therefore, it's not a matter of what's being talked about, subject matter, but rather the word. And what the word is indicating within the context of the subject. So you can read Job, you can read the Psalms, you can read Genesis. Different subjects, same context. This is what salvation is. It does it to Abraham, it does it to Job, it does it to the psalmist. Yeah. It's the perfect verb, regardless of context. Because, of course, this is the problem is that we say, well, it depends on the context. Yes, the subject matter, but the word doesn't change. The thrust, the power of the word doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Whereas what we tend to do, and this is my biggest gripe actually with the, with modern translations is, instead of translating things consistently with just one word, they'll translate one thing five different ways. Yeah, They'll use synonyms, which then makes it very difficult for the reader, especially the laity, to start seeing the patterns. Yeah, that's true. Because I then have to say, this is the same word in Hebrew that was said back here in Genesis 12 about Abraham. They don't know that. They don't know that what's said in the Psalms right here is said in Genesis. Because it's a different subject. Mm. And since it's translated synonymously, they're not saying, oh, look, he uses salvation the same way over here that he uses it here. So rather than find uh, an, an English word that has kind of the same range of meanings as the, the original language word. They, yeah. they actually just use multiple different words, but then we don't right. know that actually it's a translation of the same word. Exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about just a little bit ago, add to that, you don't know it's a perfect verb. Oh, so yeah. how are you reading it even in English then? Yeah. 
Not only do you know the you don't know the original grammar, but now you don't know the original verb tense. Mm-hmm. So you're twice removed from the original meaning of the text. Yeah, because we lack we English lacks the uh, the everything. Yeah, <laughs> it's the it's the language of commerce. It's not the language of hmm. of poetry and prose. Hmm. Yeah, I know. Oh, wow. Which is probably why when we read English, we read the Bible in English, we think transactionally. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe for the reason why people have the preference for the uh, King James Version, because it, it does yeah. use language that they don't know, uh, so it sounds more poetic, I suppose. Exotic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or exotic, yeah. Because it's exotic, it's poetic. Exactly. Nevertheless, hmm. some Psalms acquired a new or Christian meaning. For example, Psalm seventy one twenty three, Psalm 74, 2, 103, verse 4. But in particular, Psalm 49, verses 8 and 9, and Psalm 49, verse 14, where the transformation of Sheol, the world of death, is transformed into hell. And then he ends the thought with, more will have to be said about that. Yeah, right. There's but always more. this is a key point because in Greek, of course, it's translated as Hades, mm-hmm. which is the underworld. Right. And in the first century, that's dripping with meaning. That's pregnant with meaning, of course, for Greeks. Likewise, then in Hebrew, Sheol is pregnant with meaning. We've talked about this at the beginning of the podcast. It is this world of darkness and coldness where you're devoured by worms. It's a tight space. And it's a place of distress. Mm-hmm. And there, Luther adds to it in his translation the Christian meaning, the New Testament meaning, uh, not only the world of death, but hell itself, the place of torment. Yeah. Which is very important, important. And I draw this out for myself personally in my ministry that hell is not Gehenna in the sense of the burning fire. That's Gehenna was the pit behind Jerusalem <laughs> where they burned all the waste and all the sewage. Yeah, the garbage dump. And so, the, yeah, the garbage dump. And and so when they looked over the wall and went, "Oh, look, the valley's on fire. We're burning our sewage and our trash." That's hell. That's a very practical, real world. I bet you that's what hell's like. But if you translate Sheol as hell. Then it starts to make more sense, I think, from a Hebrew-minded way of thinking. That is, hell is the absence of God speaking to you. Yeah, that's right. That it is God showing his face to you is a sign of grace, uh, unconditional favor. It is warmth. It is heat. It is God's favor because he's looking at you. And if he's looking at you, he speaks to you. Mm-hmm. That's his word. To God, For God to look away from you, that is true judgment. Mm. For God to turn his, way, his face away from you means no favor, no grace, I'm not going to talk to you. It's dark, it's cold, and the worms are going to devour your flesh because I'm life, and therefore, if I'm not looking at you, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And this is the meaning of the word nefesh, that the breath of life, the soul, yeah. the suke in Greek, that God breathes into us the breath of life. He also then takes it back because our life, our nefesh, isn't ours. It's his, and it's given to us as a gift. Yeah, it's like the valley Which, of dry bones, right? If to exactly. breathe on the slain. Before Which goes back to Paul and John Donne, what we were just talking about in the translation, that that's why the difference between life and eternal life is a breath, because, well, it literally is. Mm-hmm. God gives you breath. That's what gives you life to begin with. Yeah. And when you are raised from the dead, he just gives you back the same breath. So it's not even your breath <laughs> to lose. It's his to give back. So to say, I've lost my breath, is to, again, approach it from the wrong direction, but rather... Where does my breath come from? Mm-hmm. Well, my life, my soul comes from God. And since he is my life, I can't die. Because yeah. my life doesn't reside inside of me. It doesn't abide in me, but rather it abides in Christ through faith. How's it go? In him, all things have 
life and breath and and uh, all things uh, live and move and have their being. Yeah, Colossians. And that's then to kind of bring this to an end. We've gone super long this time, but you can tell that Pastor Gillespie and I are uh, geeks for this stuff. Uh, check out the book Luther in the Old Testament by Heinrich Bornkamp. Two M's. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful introduction to the thought of Martin Luther. And like like you said, this is decade. This is a life's work. Yeah, really, for Bornkamp that he had to read everything Luther did about the Old Testament and then put it all together and break it down and and find the patterns and listen to Luther as an exegete and let Luther teach Borncom how to describe Luther as an it's a, it's a monumental work. Yeah. Maybe do in a, the book what about a page a day? <laughs> the section, yeah, two or three pages a day just digest it. The book itself with introductions and bibliography and everything is Let's see here. 266 pages. And what is it, like 18 bucks on Amazon or something? I don't know. Probably even cheaper. Mm-hmm. But that is the remarkable thing about this. It's 266 pages. He's boiling down all of Luther Luther's Old Testament exegesis. He's explaining to you how the magician does his tricks. <laughs> it's a remarkable work. And if you if you go with it, it will constantly amaze you, I think, and force you to think about Luther in a different way and also approach the Old Testament in a different way as a Lutheran anyways and and really question not only your presuppositions but also your theological conclusions about how you read the scriptures. And the real world, I think, the practical consequences for this, like Borenkamp points out, for the Psalter is your piety will be affected. Uh, your your sense of standing in relation to the Bible will be changed. Your sense of standing in relation to God and your neighbor will be changed. Because not just the prophecies of Christ come out then, but also where Christ is showing up, where the second person of the Trinity is showing up in the Old Testament. And that changes the whole game. You read um, Luther, and the Old, uh, Luther and the Psalms mm-hmm. and read his introduction to each psalm. It's remarkable how Luther can say, well, this psalm is about the gospel. Mm-hmm. Or this psalm's about those who persecute the gospel. Or this is about Jesus being crucified. Or this is about the last day. And then you read the psalm and go, I'm just going to trust that you know what you're talking about because I don't see that at all. Wow. He's so tuned to not only the grammatical context of the scriptures, but the broader context of how this all points back to Christ. And therefore, as an exegete, everything Luther does is not struggling to be a better translator, hmm. but rather translate in such a way that Jesus is made more prominent, yeah. clearer to the reader. And that for Luther, the only thing that gets in the way of Christ being there on every page of the scriptures for us isn't a lack of clarity in regard to God's word, but rather sin blinds us to the truth. Yeah, Lack of willingness to allow him right. to appear and speak. So, yeah. I hope you enjoyed that. It's been a fun conversation. I've wanted to talk about this for a while. Mm. So I'm glad we got to talk about it. I think maybe next time we even might look at a Luther historian. Maybe talk about the Heidelberg Disputation, the historical stuff that happened at the Heidelberg Disputation. Yeah, um, in fact, let's just reveal it on the show. Uh, Pastor Fenker and I, uh, we have a new translation of the Heidelberg Disputation coming out through Higher Things. Oh, nice. And I'm writing the introduction to it because, in my opinion, Heidelberg's actually where the Reformation started because of the the impact that it had that very day on the people that were there and yeah. how so many reformers 
And so many people who hated Luther and tried to get him murdered and executed were there that day at Heidelberg. And what he said in those Heidelberg theses was so powerful that, and so provocative that it changed people for the rest of their life. Not 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 the the the, the fifteen seventeen stuff. Not the ninety five theses. That didn't that didn't change no. too many people. Yeah. It irritated some people who didn't think that he was asking you know pious questions. Yeah, and I got photo, Heidel- photocopied, and then people started. Talking right, exactly. About it. Again, it was just a monk asking questions that weren't pious. <laughs> they were impertinent. But Heidelberg was really the explosion that is still heard to this day. It really is. And in fact, next year, you know, is the anniversary of that of the Heidelberg uh, disputation. So there you Those go. There you so go. there you go. So stay tuned. Watch out for that. As soon as I finish the int- the intro to the thing, we'll actually publish it for you. Um, Leon, look up for that. Maybe that'll be a Christmas present from Higher Things. Nice. But thank you for listening to this podcast. As always, subscribe. Go write a positive review for us. This is as Lutheran as it gets. So we have to be the most popular, most listened to Lutheran podcast in the world. It's just the way it has to be. It's it's destiny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but thank you again. Go get yourself some pomegranate lemonade kombucha by Hum. It's my new favorite kombucha. And buy Pastor Gillespie's coffee. He needs a space heater. <laughs> a I bigger one. I a bigger, a bigger one. one. Yeah. You need a wood stove in your garage. That's right. I That's should. what you need. Yeah. Uh, come back next time for a brand new episode. I hope you like what we're doing. We certainly love doing it. And I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> See you. like what you're listening to higher things podcasts are free for you but they aren't free to produce please consider supporting the higher things podcasts as lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support